We're continuing our study together in the Gospel of John. In this Lord's Day morning, we find ourselves in chapter 4, another familiar passage, the encounter with the Samaritan woman. We won't cover the entire encounter, but we will look at verses 1 to 15, chapter 4 of the Gospel of John, verses 1 through 15. I encourage you to follow in your Bible as I read. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, for... Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well? And drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, Give me this water, that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Again, this is a famous encounter of where our Lord meets this woman, this Samaritan woman in Samaria. So, in the previous chapter, we we saw already an issue had been raised. Jesus was, John the Baptist was baptizing, as was Jesus through his disciples, Jesus was baptizing. And apparently by now already, Jesus' baptism ministry is is, uh, getting more response than John the Baptist. More are coming to him. Remember, that raised an issue when John's disciples said, you know, complaining to to John the Baptist, to their teacher, saying, John, our rabbi, um, you know, the, the fellow you endorsed is now outshining you. What are you going to do about that is basically, I think, what they're saying. And, and he tried to help them understand you weren't listening. <laughs> I kept telling you, I'm not, I'm, I'm not the message. I'm a messenger. He's the message. And, the, and that wonderful statement, he must increase, I must decrease. Well, chapter 4 continues on this reality of the, the over-success of Jesus, if you will. Therefore, when the, 
the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, we see Jesus taking action. Um, notice, by the way, I'll just in passing, it says in verse 2, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples. And so he baptized in the sense that uh, his agents did. His disciples did the baptism uh, as part of his ministry. And, uh, you know, so often we'll say, for example, a, a king conquered a, a country or a city. Well, the king wasn't even there. Uh, but, but his forces under his direction did it. And so Jesus' disciples uh, did it in, in Jesus' name. Why didn't Jesus baptize? And we could look at a number of things that, that wasn't his primary calling. His primary calling was um, to die for our sin. Many have suggested had, had Jesus uh, baptized people personally, that might have been a, a point of pride and division in the church through, all, through then out, you know, where everybody would like to pull out their little baptism card and say, well, who baptized you? <laughs> John the Baptist. Well, that's pretty good. Paul the Apostle, yeah. John the Apostle, wonderful. Jesus baptized me. You know, so I think Jesus, and, and, and matter of fact, Paul will in 1 Corinthians say, um, I'm glad that I didn't baptize. He names a few, uh, not more than, and the way he does it, it's even, and maybe there were some others. He makes it really clear. It's not that big a deal. I've met people, you know, that will tell me, I was baptized by so-and-so. And um, so Jesus avoided that by letting his disciples do it. And, and I think it's interesting, too, just to note that, um, Notice that that's part of his ministry. Notice how it described Jesus' ministry. We, we, we don't see his baptism ministry very much, but notice what he's doing. It says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees heard, Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John. When we think of Jesus, we think of him um, preaching. We think of him doing miracles. Of course, we think of him dying on the cross and rising from the dead. But, but this emphasizes, too, that Jesus was making disciples, and baptism was part of that. And so baptism was a mark that this is a disciple, a follower of Christ. And so as they followed him, as they became believers, and as they expressed their repentance and faith, they were baptized by Jesus' disciples. And so that's a mark of their discipleship. And that's, for example, why... You know, we'll have our baptism service this coming Easter, and that's a, a way of saying, I'm a follower of Christ. Um, in case you don't make it to our, I'll, I'll give you a preview of how we do a baptism service. Uh, one of the things we do is the, whoever's going to be baptized uh, has to come up and give us their testimony of faith. I, I'll meet with them. Uh, they express to me that they're trusting in Christ as their Savior. They then will share their testimony with you, and it's always a really encouraging thing. Um, we're different people. And God brings us to him in so many different ways, but he brings us to him through Jesus Christ. And so we'll hear their testimonies. And I often will tell the candidates for baptism, now you understand when you stand up there and are baptized, you're identifying yourself with Christ and you're declaring to everybody out there that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. You are giving permission to them to help you. And so if they see that you need help to get back on the path, you've told them straight up that your intent and commitment is to follow Christ. So you're inviting 
that, uh, shall we say, encouragement. <laughs> and, um, and, so I, and, and so as we are, are there, as we're watching that, we're encouraging them, we're being blessed. Uh, and that's what's going on here. Jesus was discipling Jesus, and, and people were expressing their, their uh, commitment through baptism. But then we're told that the Lord knew, the Pharisees knew, that he was baptizing more. In other words, they, they were becoming aware of the popularity of his ministry. And for that reason, he left and departed to Galilee. And we might say, how does that connect? Um, I think what's going on here, it's, it's unstated, but at this point, in this context, I think the whole point is um, uh, Jesus has a schedule. One day he's going to have a conflict with these Pharisees. It's not time yet. He has more to do. And so um, he postpones some of that as they see. And frankly, you know, they went to John the Baptist and they're upset. What are you doing here? You know, who are you? What authority do you have? Well, Jesus might be confronted in the same way. And he wasn't ready for that yet in, in his plan and purpose. And we often see comments in scripture about the Lord's timing. Just some of the ones that struck me. John 2, 4. Remember the, uh, uh, the wedding at Cana when Mary came to him and said, you know, they're, 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 they're run out of wine. And he said, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. He knew his schedule. He knew his schedule. John 7, 6, Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. In verse 8 of John 7, uh, you go up to the feast. I'm not going to this feast. My time has not yet fully come. John 8, 20, these words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. Later in, in chapter 26 of Matthew, verse 18, he's, as he's setting up um, the Passover meal, I often think of that context, this context as we're setting up for our Seder. He said, go into the city to a certain man, say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. You know, think about that. So our Lord knew God's program and God's schedule. It was no surprise. It was his purpose to follow God's plan. But he also wisely uh, kept, he acted in a way that fit into the schedule. This wasn't the time now for conflict with the Pharisees, and so he left. We're told he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. Now, if you were to look at a map, there are three major routes. You know, he's down uh, by the Jordan, just east of Jericho, kind of where Israel uh, crossed into the Promised Land. As he was baptizing there, he, could, uh, he had three options. The long route, which would, wouldn't make much sense, he could have crossed over to the uh, Mediterranean Sea, to the coastal highway, gone up and gone into Galilee that way. Um, I don't see any reason to do that. That would be, kind of be unnecessarily long. It would be very natural to just, right while he's out to Jordan, just on the east side of the Jordan, take the, the road up along the east side of the Jordan River and then cross over. Many Jews would have preferred that and would have chosen that right out because that kept them from going through ter Samaritan territory. And there was a lot of, um, as we'll see, 
um, hard feelings, bitterness, and sometimes even hostility uh, for Jews passing through Samaria. And so they just avoided it. Though it's interesting, I just this week uh, came across a passage in um, Josephus where he records that the Jews of Galilee, when going to Jerusalem to the, celebrate the feasts, like Passover, they would pass through Samaria. So at least the Galilean Jews, and they tended to be maybe not you know, quite as uh, worried about the observant issues of the Pharisees as the Judean Jews. Anyway, so Jesus could have gone the way that the, the Pharisees would have gone, stay away from Samaria, go up on the eastern side of the Jordan, and then cross over. But So when it says Jesus needed to go through Samaria, um, that, that tells me something. That word need uh, is often it's used in, in the context of what is called divine necessity. So Jesus, we are, we've already seen he's aware of his schedule. And, and what this tells me is he needed by God's appointment to pass through Samaria. And so what that tells me is his encounter with the Samaritan woman is a divine appointment. And so as Jesus is choosing to go through Samaria, and then as we will see as it unfolds before the end of the chapter, um, he'll be uh, preaching the gospel and seeing response among the Samaritans. But, but Jesus had divine appointment. I often like to think about that in our own lives as we are uh, encountering people. It, I wonder if, if we recognize the sovereignty of God. Well, we're not here by accident. And, and God governs our time and God governs our direction even when we don't see it. And so... When we encounter people, it's helpful if we realize uh, this is a divine appointment. Would that, would that awaken us to um, see that person as, as someone that God wants in some way to have you touch their life? If we saw the people we meet as every one of them as a divine appointment. Well, that was Jesus. And so he was, had a divine appointment with this woman and with the Samaritans. And so we see in verses 5 to 8, he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, or Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. And for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And so as he comes, he comes to this uh, familiar site uh, this, uh, in Samaria. And so, by the way, I just want you to notice, he comes to a specific place. It's named. We know the area. It's in Samaria. We know the name of the town. He comes to a specific well, Jacob, Jacob's well, that was uh, dug by Jacob. You know, and Jacob, it's in the property that Jacob gave his son Joseph couple things just, just in passing we might notice. Do you see how historical this is? These are real people, real places. This isn't some kind of mythology. You know, some people want to say, well, the Bible is myth. Is myth. It's, it's stories that teach a lesson. Well, there are 
lessons we're to learn, but, but these are real events, real people in real places. That's kind of one of the benefits when people take a uh, trip to Israel and go and see the sites. It's, it's rather moving to stand in a place that you've, you've read about and say, you know, these steps leading up into the temple area. Um, Jesus walked up these steps. These seats around this synagogue, Jesus was in this synagogue. And then you have to decide, am I going to really embarrass myself and make a point of sitting in every spot so I can say I sat where Jesus sat in the synagogue? Uh, I have to confess I like to walk around and cover a lot of ground on those steps outside the temple because Jesus walked up these steps. Now, that doesn't make it real. But it makes me just, it, just, it helps us remember it's history. And that's one of the things. Uh, many religions, it's, it's just stories. They didn't actually happen. When I was talking to the teaching of world religions to the students in, in Nepal, um, that was one of the things I was drawing a distinction. The Bible, it, it's, it's, it's real people, real places, real events. The mythology of, of Hinduism is anything but. They're mythical stories that are meant to teach lessons, but they're not based in reality. This is reality. You can go today to Jacob's Well. Wednesday night, I showed you a little video, and uh, of, there it is. It's in a, of course, things have changed. There was not an Orthodox church built around the well when Jesus was there, but, but the well's there. And uh, you can go there. You can see that place. You won't meet the Samaritan woman. But I have met Samaritans in Samaria. And um, it just occurred to me, I wonder if any of them are descended from her. But anyway, all that to say, you see what I'm saying? The Christian faith is a historical, factual, real faith. And, and Paul talked about that when he said, if Jesus, our faith says Jesus rose from the grave. If Jesus didn't rise from the grave, everything falls apart. If it's not historically true, it's meaningless. By the way, that flies in the face of the current sense of our culture. Increasingly, we don't believe in factual facts. It's, all, it's only, you know, have you heard the concept? Well, that's your truth. Well, how can we have private truths? And so this is truth, uh, what Francis Schaeffer would call true truth. And so this is a reminder. The Christian faith is it's a historical reality, ultimately especially, a real God came to earth and became a real man, and he died on a real cross, he was buried in a real tomb, and he rose and left that real tomb in a real resurrected body, offering us a real salvation. And none of that was in my notes. So, but, but, but I want that to, 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 for us to see and realize. We see the reality of Jesus. It says he sat by the well because he was weary from his journey. Um, and it was the sixth hour. And again, on Wednesday night, we kind of filled in some of the details. The journey from the baptism site to here would be about um, 30 miles, 25, 30 miles. And it's, it's, it's up all the way. Uh, from, from Jericho is one of the lowest spots. The Dead Sea is the lowest uh, place in the world 
um, geographically. Morally, there are other places we could point to, but geographically, it's the lowest place in the world. And so to go from there up into the, um, the hills of Samaria, you know, that's, that's an incline of a few thousand feet. So making that walk, he was weary. Now, the sixth hour I would take to be uh, like 6 p.m. The Romans had, and Jews had different ways of reckoning time. The Jews built their day on sunrise, sunset. And so in the Jewish reckoning, the day begins at sunset and, and ends at sunset. And so they, they reckon they count hours either from sunset or sunrise. Um, if we counted from sunrise, that would put the sixth hour uh, something like close to noon. The problem is if it, he would have a hard time walking 30 miles from Jericho to Samaria and getting there by noon. And, if, and I won't get into the details, but again, some of that, if you want to, you could listen to what we said on Wednesday night. But uh, it looks like John uses the Roman time frame. Midnight, noon are the two counting start pots. And so six hours from noon would put him there about 6 p.m., hour and a half, two hours before sunset at that time of the year. And so he's had a long walk in the heat of the day. He's weary. Now remember, John begins his book by saying, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He wants us to be very clear. Jesus is God. Verse, then later on he says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He is man, truly God, truly man. And so when he comes and is weary after the, the long journey, he's weary in his humanity. He is, he is a true man. He gets tired. He gets thirsty. Some heresies in history have said, well, Jesus was truly God, but he was only the appearance of a man. No, he was truly God and truly man. And so that's how we see him here at the well. Truly God, truly man, truly tired, and truly thirsty. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now, parents already are you know, thinking, I've got to work this out with my kids. We say, please. Um, but this would be the courteous way of communicating back then. It's, I think, too, about the fact that the, the, the rabbis, the Pharisees, were real particular about men shouldn't talk to women. And so they say, if you, for example, you're out and you're, you're having to choose which road to take, and the only person you can ask directions from is a woman... And here I have to remind you, in Jesus' day, we didn't have iPhones with GPS. Okay? So if you had to ask a woman, you would say, which to Jerusalem? You don't say which road because that's an unnecessary word. She would know you would meant which road. And so if you have to talk to a woman, use as few words as possible. That's what the Pharisees would say. So I don't know if Jesus, uh, too, is, is being a little short. But, but remember with his mother, he says, woman. What does that have to do with you? This, this was the standard way of speaking. And then he says, um, would you give me a drink? Because he was all alone. The disciples couldn't help him. And, and he asked her politely, but simply, for a drink of water. Some have noticed, by the way, that if you want to open a door to someone, a lot of times if you show yourself indebted to them by asking, hey, could you help me with something? Automatically, that kind of 
can help people be a little more open to you. And so he says, would you mind helping me with this? And the woman of Samaria said to him, notice, by the way, twice now already we're told she's the woman of Samaria. Because that's important. She's a woman of Samaria. Notice how often that's repeated in this. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? There it is again. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Do you think that's an issue? You know, keep saying that. Oh, oh, she's a Samaritan and he's a Jew. And so she responds to his simple request, would you please give me a drink of water? Is how we would say it. Would you give me a drink of water or give me a drink of water? What's her response? She doesn't say no. She doesn't say yes. She says, what are you doing? You're a Jew and you ask a drink of me, for me, a, a woman, and literally it's a woman, a Samaritan. It's kind of, you know, here I am a woman. And you guys don't think so highly of women, you Pharisees. You're asking a Samaritan. Um, and then I'm not sure if she says it or if this is John the Apostle explaining, but either way it says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And that word has no dealings literally means they don't share things, like they don't share the same drinking cup. It's like um, if, if um, a Samaritan drank from the cup, a Jew wouldn't drink from it. And so, so you want to drink out of my water vessel, you Jew, and I'm a Samaritan? So notice her response. I, I kind of see it as a little bitter, a little resentful. Instead of just saying yes or no, she gives him a dig. Oh, Oh, so now the high and mighty Jew wants a Samaritan. Uh, is, he's okay drinking with us from a Samaritan vessel, huh? So you, you kind of get an attitude here and a little antagonism. So Jesus answered and said to her, and by the way, do you notice how often Jesus doesn't ask the, answer the question that he's asked? He answers the question he wants to answer. Jesus answered her and said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He doesn't get into the Jew-Samaritan issue. Oh, that's only some Jews. That's, that's not me. He redirects to what the real issue is. He, re, he really he re, redirects to what the real is. Now, if, if, if you knew, and notice it's not just even, if you knew how good the water I had was, notice he says, if you knew the gift of God and who says it to you, if you had any idea who I am, you see me as a hated Jew, you're missing something. I'm someone who can offer you something very special. You would have asked, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for a gift. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where did you get that living water that you're talking about? Now, living water, by the way, um, that was, there's a distinction. That's, that's opposed, they would often talk about water as living water. If it was coming from a spring or if it's in a stream, it's moving water. And so she's saying, oh, oh yeah, so you've, you've got some living... She's thinking in those terms. 
Oh, so you've got living water? She looks at him. I don't see a draw. You know, you don't have a vessel to draw in from a well or anything. How are you going to offer this? See, she's thinking strictly the externals. Where, where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? But I'm noticing something. She began by saying, you're a Jew asking a Samaritan for water? But would you notice in verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with. That's sir. Actually, it's, it's Lord. Now, I'm not saying she knows he's God, but it's, sometimes you can use the word Lord as sir or as God. She's, but either way, she's speak, speaking to him respectfully. Now, he said, if you knew who I was, it looks to me like there's a, there's a, there's a change happening here. He's saying he's someone special who can offer her something special. And notice her, her first response, uh, having an attitude, an antagonism. I see it starting to soften. Sir... And maybe, maybe she's responding partially to his even tone of voice. He's not talking to her like a typical Jew would. He's talking about being able to give her something. We'll probably talk later, but it seems this woman probably didn't have a lot of friendly conversations. Usually when women went to the well to draw, they were with all the other women going to draw. And they did a lot of chatting on the way and don't see her with anyone Here's someone who's treating her with kindness. And so she starts responding with, like I said, I sense a change beginning. She, she speaks with him respect. She calls him sir. He says, you don't have anything to draw with. How can you give me living water? Where, where are you going to get it? But then she, notice she kind of changes gears herself. Who are you? Who are you if you think you can give me something special? Living water that's better than the water from Jacob's well? (laughs) Are you better than Jacob? That's the right question. Now I think she's asking kind of rhetorically, of course you're not. No one's better than Jacob. That'd be like maybe a Jew saying, are you better than Abraham? To which Jesus, if he wanted to, could say, well, actually. <laughs> and, la- and later on in chapter 8, when they'll say, are you greater than Abraham? He says, well, before Abraham was, I, I am. But he's not ready for that yet. But, but, but notice she's starting, notice what Jesus has done. And I think the Holy Spirit's working too. He's turning the issue to who are you? And may I say, that is the issue. Who is Jesus Christ? And what kind of a relationship do you have with him? Are you greater than Jacob? In verse 13 and 14, Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. Notice how Jesus so often doesn't answer the question that's asked. Have you ever watched these politicians? You ask them a question. And they give you the answer that they wrote before they ever came in. 
And it has nothing to do with the question. It's, you know, like you ask them, is today Thursday? And you say, well, my budget plan for next year, I just asked you what, you know. Well, Jesus, that's because they have a message. And they often, you know, they're, they're often counseled, stay on message. In a sense, Jesus is doing that, but, but graciously. He could talk about the fact, well, actually, I am greater than Jacob. And, and remember when Jacob was, was nearby here in, in Bethel and, you know, the, the ladder going up and down? I was there. He could have gone there, but in his wisdom, that's not her time to hear that just yet. So he goes back to the water issue, and he's doing to her what he did to Nicodemus. So Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will drink again, will thirst again. Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain, a spring of water, springing up. And the word spring there is, uh, can be used of jumping bubbling up into everlasting life. So now Jesus is directing the question where he wants it to go, the conversation. Jacob's well is good, but you know what? Did you notice that you're coming back here? Maybe she was already there in the morning. That was not uncommon. Remember, they didn't have running water in their homes. I wonder if any of you, either growing up or maybe as kids here today, have had a parent tell you, turn off the faucet, maybe while you're washing dishes. Can you imagine your thoughts growing up if mom had to carry a five-gallon jar of water 15 minutes each way at least? Five gallons, that'd be about 40 pounds. How do you think mom would think about you spilling water? (laughs) So all that to say, so this is a great well, this water is wonderful, but Jesus offers something better. It fully satisfies. Jesus is offering satisfaction that the things of this world cannot offer. He's offering her a well that will, that will be self-sufficient, a source of life. Listen to what he says in John chapter 7, verses 37 to 39. Of course, when the, uh, on the last day, John, 30, John 7, verses 37 to 39. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so I think when he's talking to her, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. If uh, I could give you the Holy Spirit, who would, who would be a source of life everlasting? And so the woman's response is, Sir, again, notice the respect. Give me this water that I might not thirst, nor come here to draw. So when I, I confess, when I first read this account and read these words over and over again, I thought she was mocking him, like, okay, she's calling his bluff. Okay, let's see this water where I'm never going to thirst again. But that word, sir, keeps striking at me. I think it's kind of a, maybe a rhetorical question, or I don't know how to describe it. But I think it's more, I don't think it's sarcastic. 
It may really just show how her despair. I, I, I wish I could have an end to the ceaseless trudging back here alone, the, uh, having this desire that is never satisfied. I'd love some water like that. Maybe that's the spirit she's saying. So what did she mean when she asked for the water? I don't think she knew. But she, he's offering her an unending satisfaction, and she's, uh, she's looking for it. Now, I'm struck by this. This is, I've mentioned a number of times, I call this teaching by confusion. Jesus mentions these things like he's talking about water, but, but, but Jesus isn't talking about water, is he? But he's using water to get his point across, sort of. Just like when he talked to Nicodemus. Here comes Nicodemus, and he says, uh, you must be born again. And, and Nicodemus goes straight to physical literalists and say, okay, I don't get that. How am I supposed to be born again? Am I supposed to go back to my mother? What, what, how does this work? Well, he's, he's talking about being born again, but he didn't mean being born again. And he's talking about living water, but he doesn't mean living water. He's using these things to, to make people, please explain, help me understand and so, so I think this is important to watch our Lord's strategy. Sometimes we feel that we haven't successfully had a gospel encounter if we don't hit them with all, hit them with all 12 points of, of the gospel presentation, quoted the verses, and, uh, and, and made a push for a prayer on the spot. And would you, would you mind signing this little card? Now, if we haven't done that, we haven't shared the gospel. Have you ever noticed how gentle Jesus is? He's happy. if He, he takes you as far as he can. But if he can stir an awareness of your need, he starts there. Man comes to him and says, oh, I wish I could have. What do I have to do to, to, to have eternal life? And Jesus says, well, well keep the commandments. And, and, and if some of you said that in a gospel presentation, would smack you and say, what? Keep the commandments? What does that have to do? Well, he's trying to surface a need. Oh, I've kept all the commandments. And then Jesus says, you know, he, he sees an opening there. Oh, really? You know, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. He said, well, then, well, that's great. Well, then just sell everything you have and follow me. You see what he's doing? He, and that's where it stops there. Because that's as far as that person is ready to go. But he, he stirred the waters. In the first case, show him the need. Well, Jesus is doing that when he teaches by confusion. He's, Wouldn't you like a water that satisfies wouldn't you like a lasting satisfaction in life? By the way, have you noticed, I mentioned a Wednesday night, I gave a homework assignment. Uh, please turn, sign, if you wouldn't mind signing it and turning it in. No. Uh, I, I think about the difference between the Samaritan woman and Nicodemus. I think there's a very real reason why chapter 4 follows chapter 3. Because 4 is the next largest number, but but also because um, there's, there's a real contrast between these very different people. Uh, I'm going to cheat and just quote uh, James Montgomery Boyce for a simple summary. It's difficult to imagine a greater contrast between two persons than the contrast between the important and sophisticated Nicodemus, this ruler of the Jews, and the simple Samaritan woman. I doubt she even could read. And he was the teacher of Israel. Anyway, he was a Jew. She was a Samaritan. He was a Pharisee. She belonged to no religious party. He was a politician. She had no status whatever. He was a scholar. She was uneducated. 
He was highly moral. She was immoral. He had a name. She's nameless. We don't know her name. He was a man. She was a woman. He came at night to protect his reputation. She who had no reputation came at noon. Nicodemus came seeking. The woman was sought by Jesus. And I'm sure you could have filled in other details as well. But why does, Nick, why does John the Apostle put these two accounts next to each other? Because he can say you could be at the top of the pile. You could be the, the most educated person in society. You could be the wealthiest. You could be the most powerful. You could be, you could be a, a leader among men and women. Or you could be at the bottom of the pile. You could be impoverished. Notice, she's not sending servants to get her water. You know, you could be illiterate. You could be a social outcast. And so what, Jesus, what John is showing us, and you know what? Jesus dealt with both of them the same way. Basically the same teaching method. To awaken them a realization that he and he alone could offer life satisfaction. It's interesting, if, as, the tale, as, the, as the account goes on, Nicodemus went away unsatisfied, didn't he? We see him later coming back, and that's good. This woman made a lot more progress than Nicodemus. But I'm, Spoiler alert, I shouldn't have told you that. But if you read ahead, you'll see. And that's kind of an amazing thing. That godly, moral, scholarly, biblical teacher has a less fruitful response than the Samaritan outcast. So as, as we think of this account, I'd like you to think about some things with me. Look at the grace, the infinite God who came in human flesh that he would reach out personally to the social outcast, this bottom of the barrel. You remember how Paul will say, you know, not many of you have a high calling. You know, he talked to the church of his day and say, let's be honest. We're not the social elites. There may be some among us, but for the most part, most of his audience were slaves, outcasts of society. And we see here that God, the eternal, the immortal, the invisible, the only wise God in human form, can come and sit and have a conversation with this woman. I've talked to people over the years that say, you know, the Lord would never have me. If you knew me, the Lord would never have me. And I just tell, you know, look at this passage. If you've ever had such a thought, look at this. Jesus delight. Jesus delights to reach out to those who have no hope, who have no standing. Notice the sovereignty of God's will here. This was not a chance encounter. The Samaritan woman didn't get lucky that day. When Jesus closed his baptism ministry at the Jericho, at the Jordan, and started trudging north, he chose the path, he chose the time. Think about that. From eternity past, this was a set appointment, and Jesus left on the right day at the right time to arrive at the right place to meet this woman as she came and even worked out so perfectly that the disciples went in to buy, go shopping 
at the uh, Samaritan Walmart. And, and there he was ready to meet with her in grace. But notice the sovereignty of God's will. He had to go. This was a divine appointment for divine work in the heart. Again, I'm struck at how gently he teaches. Could he, wouldn't, it wouldn't have been natural for some of us. Oh, you Jews. I tell you, you Samaritans. And it could have ended there, you know. But instead he just deflects that. So if you knew who I was and what I was offering, you'd ask me for a gift. Notice his gentleness. How he reaches out. And again, I think, this, I think it's, it's purposeful when he says, would you help me? Could I have a drink of water? Now, he could have just said, hey, step back. I'll show, I want to show you something. And levitated her little thing down into the fountain, brought it up. And he could have known all kinds of things. This is the, this is the God who can create wine from water. This is the God who can split the sea. He could have said, watch, and just brought the, fa- those fa- fa- uh, the water up. But instead, he dealt with humility and gentleness. Sometimes Christians aren't, don't always have a reputation for dealing with people in that way, with humility and gentleness. And again, I just notice his wisdom and his typical method. He doesn't pummel with the gospel. He doesn't hammer until he gets a response. I read one book on how to present the gospel, and it said, you know, you just keep going and keep going, and if the person keeps resisting, then the closing action is, if they still won't receive the gospel after you've really... Uh, used every means you know, then you put your hand on their shoulder, bow your head and say, if you don't mind, I'd like to pray for you. And, and you can, I can lead you in a prayer that t- you tell Jesus you're rejecting him and want nothing to do with him. Repeat after me. <laughs> you know, uh, and, oh, that's a very effective way. because it, Jesus isn't manipulative. He isn't unkind. He takes us as far as he can get us. And if maybe you think back to how you came to Christ, it was in steps. When I first heard the gospel, I, I was at zero. I didn't even know if there was a God. And I told the person who talked to me, I don't know if there's God. How can I think about Jesus being his son? I don't know what to do with what you're telling me. Did God just give up on me then? Did the guy go into a debate? He left me with a little book and said, well, maybe we can talk later. Whenever he saw me on campus, hey, have you thought any more about that? And then God started bringing believers into my life and force, reinforcing the message. Okay. I'm a little slow. But in my case, that's God's mercy and grace that he, he kept gently moving me along. One of my friends, his gospel method was a, a plane flew over, says Jesus saves. And he pointed up and said, look, that's true, you know. And that, that was how he identified himself to me as a Christian. Oh, you too? <laughs> Before I was a Christian. Oh, you're one of them too, huh? Um. I, I can't close the sermon without going to Mr. Spurgeon. Let me read his comment on Jeremiah 2.13. And so he uses the King James. John, uh, For my people have committed two evils, Jeremiah says. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. That's Jeremiah 2.13. Mr. Spurgeon says this. To go away from the flowing fountain to the stagnant waters of a cistern is a great folly. 
Have you ever had water from a cistern? That is, uh, that means the water never gets cleared or, anyway. To go away from the flowing fountain to the stagnant waters of a cistern is great folly, but to go and hew out broken cisterns that can hold no water, but merely mock your thirst is madness of the worst kind, and that's what man's religion is. A cistern is a, is a pit that holds water. To count on broken cisterns, they, not only do they hold not bracken water, they don't hold any water. That's man's religion. What a tragedy. During a gospel meeting in town in Ohio, a man was greatly convicted of his need of the Lord Jesus. He concealed his feelings even from his wife, who was a lovely Christian. One evening when she was away, she became so anxious about his condition, she began pacing. He became so anxious about his condition, he became, began pacing the floor. His daughter, noticing her father's agitation, asked him what was wrong. He said, oh, nothing, trying in vain to relieve the pangs of conviction. The youngster, with the profound simplicity of childhood, said, Daddy, if you were thirsty, wouldn't you go and get a drink of water? Her words startled the father. He thought of his thirsty soul so parched and empty, and then he remembered what he had heard in the meeting, that the gospel was like a freely flowing fountain. He resisted no longer, and that night he asked Jesus to save him. Jesus was using language to speak of our heart need. If you have been sensing that emptiness, that need, let me urge you, Jesus Christ is the answer. Flee to him for forgiveness and life. And by the way, do you notice he says you'll never thirst again? There's no sense here of you get saved and get lost and get saved again. Once he does a work in your heart... It's a lasting and eternal spring of soul satisfaction. For those of us who know Christ as Savior, sometimes do we take for granted how wonderful it is to drink of the well of life, to know his satisfaction. Father, thank you for sending Jesus Christ for us. Thank you for those of us who know him as Savior. Thank you for that those divine encounters where you accomplished your eternal purpose in our life. Thank you, Father, for the soul thrilling and filling of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I do pray, if any here have yet to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, may you open their hearts, as you did to this lovely woman. May you open their hearts to see their need and Christ's full and free provision. I pray this in his blessed name. Amen.